welcome to episode 70 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 19th of August 2019. I'm Joe, and with me is Phelim. Hello. Yes, Graham and Will are not here for the intro and news bit, but uh, through the miracle of editing, what we recorded a couple of weeks ago will be uh, coming up after the news, and that is Graham talking about his cool new 3D printer. But yeah, let's start with the news then. And uh, we usually start with KDE stuff, uh, and one that I put in this time. Beat me by a bar hair, so you did. Okay. Uh, well, go and tell us about it then. So KDE done fucked up. Yeah. So there was a feature in there. So, well, start off, a Canadian um, supposed security researcher. Um, I think that's a bit of a stretch, but <laughs> we'll get back to that. Uh, found a zero day, and for anybody not aware of what that is, that's like a Kinsenera for bugs, except it starts at zero, and I think Kinsenera's for 16, so... So that's not a very good fucking analogy, is it? Um, anyway, stretched analogies aside, uh, a zero day, um, it was allowing executable code to be run within a .desktop file, um, and every application kind of has a .desktop. It's kind of like a... Not so much as a shortcut, but like a shortcut and meta information, all the multiple language strings for an application. So the file manager and various parts of the interface can display the right icons and things like that. Yeah, so it knows where to put it in the menu, stuff like that. Exactly, yeah. And uh, so that had a ability to execute code, like shell commands. Why would you do that? Well, they don't know. That's the worst part. They can't remember. <laughs> I'm sure somebody had a great idea at a time and thought, that'll be great and we can do this. Um, you know, it could have well been something like, you know, uh, applications changing depending on, I don't know, time of day or output other commands. I mean, yeah, I can see ways you could use it, mm. but yeah, sometimes you shouldn't. And uh, this is one of these cases, but this guy has decided to go on Twitter and publish it as a zero day because he decided not to tell the KD developers, which is pretty shitty. Yeah. Well, it was just before DEF CON, wasn't it? He wanted to make a bit of a name for himself. Yeah, he was looking for a zero day. Yeah. yeah. But uh, David Foire from uh, KDE team, he patched that into uh, Plasma Frameworks 5.61, and that was out pretty damn quick afterwards. I think it was about a day and a half or so. And there was hot patches available for all the distros as well. So, I mean, had he actually bothered to tell anybody, it could have been fixed and nobody would have been any the wiser about it. Um, so, I don't know, just not the way to do things, if you ask me. But hey, what would I know? No, definitely, definitely not the way to do it. But it's interesting that the fix was to just fucking rip out the functionality, which shouldn't have been there in the first place, to be fair. Probably not. It was It was probably from more innocent times. Yeah, probably, probably. But um, all's well that ends well, I suppose. But yeah, don't fucking do that. Honestly, there's proper ways to do things. You know, there's an email address to contact the security team and you know, properly disclose stuff responsibly. Uh, don't try and make a name for yourself like this. You just end up looking like a dick. Yeah, and I mean, like, thankfully with this one, it wasn't overly easy to execute. So, you know, if it was, it could have been really dangerous otherwise, but thankfully not. Well, I don't know. If he'd had one of these malicious files in a, um, like, an archive, and you might not have noticed it. You extract the whole archive and then it's sitting in there and you didn't actually have to interact with it. The file manager just had to see it for it to, to run the executable code. So it was actually a pretty bad vulnerability, I reckon. Pretty easy to exploit, potentially. 
True, but you would have to go and download dodgy stuff off the internet, in which case... <laughs> true, but I think you could hide one in a massive archive. That's true, yeah, that is true. I mean, who looks through the entire contents of, you know, when you extract a huge archive? Are you saying you don't? Uh, maybe I should start now. Yeah, I read them at a hex editor, it's, it's the way to go. Ah, right, right, yeah. I'll do a quick LS to just make sure that it fucking worked, and that's good <laughs> enough for me, generally. There is some good news, though, coming out of uh, KDE this week. Yeah, so um, the usability and uh, productivity blog that has been uh, Nate Graham founded uh, over a year ago at this point. Have you ever not linked to this? I don't think we actually linked to it that often. I steal stories out of it, but I don't necessarily link to it directly. Oh. <laughs> no, but he, he's been following all the coverage. So they had decided uh, at Last Academy, or was it even the one before that, to do, um, you know, to make the productivity a big thing, you know, tidying up all small bugs everywhere, try and improve the workflow of application stuff. And that is coming to an end in definition very soon but i think the work that's gone into this he, he's pretty sure that that's going to continue on from you know the sub projects all the way through so i think it's been a massive success because every week he has put out a listing of all the things that are changing he's even got two that we've got linked in this and the amount of stuff that's going in there is brilliant and one of the highlights i want to show up was that snaps are going to show up properly in discover and um, you know they're going to have proper icons so you'll be able to tell things apart properly um, and you know, I think that, I think that's good. It's you know, you you've got tiny wee paper cuts all the way through, um, and it, they've been doing a great job of that. So, I think uh, it's it's pretty cool. But not just snaps. You got flat pack and app images. Exactly. Yeah. So all the covered and discover. I think if you consider how bad discover was, well, okay, bad is possibly not the right word, but raw discover was back at the start. It's it's getting towards being a very useful graphical user interface for uh, package installs. Mind you, I don't know why you would not want to use apt on its own, but hey, there you go. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I'm sure that like none of us would be using this regardless. But I think that most people do. I mean, according to people in the know, like Popey and Wimpy, the people who have access to data and you know access to studies and stuff like that, I think a lot of people do actually use graphical package managers. I mean, I will sometimes use Synaptic if I'm uh, feeling extra noobish and want to uh, have a GUI, but a full-blown GUI to me just seems like overkill. But a lot of people use it, apparently, so I think it is important to uh, you know have this support in there. I think one of the big bits of data to, to prove it is when they kind of spotlight a certain application, suddenly that gets shitloads of downloads, and so obviously there are a lot of people using the, the GUI package managers. The clues in the name, I guess, Discover, it does really help with discoverability, and I still lament the old version of F-Droid on... Um uh, lineage where I just felt it was a, an easier to find new applications as they came out. I uh, don't quite, I, I never quite got used to the new one as much um, for finding just new stuff, browsing around, find what's new. But hey, maybe just me. Yeah, I don't really ever use it for that F Droid. I tend to know what I'm going to look for. Like I'll just ask on Twitter, what's a good file manager or what's a good audio player? I actually, right, go off on a complete fucking tangent here. <laughs> I need a good audio player. For Android. Vinyl. Vinyl? Yes, use vinyl. Right. And that's in F-Droid, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't be using it. That is an F-Droid. It is absolutely an F-Droid, and it 
plays ball with my music collection of just putting stuff in my music directory and a big dump of directories and files and it reads all this, the meta information, whatever. Yeah, it's great. All right, because I was using VLC, but before that I was using the built-in one in Lineage, which is just fucking garbage. Sorry, it is. guys, but it's just... <laughs> like, why would you have the progress bar be a circle around the play button? The amount of times I've skipped through things, jumped back, and then fucking hung up my phone and taken a picture at the same time, it's just... Fuck off. Yeah. But VLC is fine, except for when I add new files, they don't show up immediately. And I add new files all the time because I will download a um, a show that I've just edited and I want to listen back to the whole thing. Right. And then I have to refresh like two, three times sometimes with VLC. So are you telling me that with vinyl, I'm not going to have to do that? I don't know about that. Now that you just <laughs> described that use case. What I use for that, see, I use two from a podcast, I use Vanilla Player. And that has a directory where you can play stuff. And my downloads directory on my, uh, from where my browser downloads my files is where I play my podcasts out of. Cause I ah. download them and rename them using my hokey fucking web page that I built myself. Yeah. And um, that sucks all the RSS feeds and then spits them out into a chronological format. Cause it used to annoy me back when I would not be up to speed with a certain one. And then they would ruin the news of the previous show. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, okay. I have issues, but fair enough. There we go. All right. Well, you're going to have to send me links to these ones on Asteroid, and I'm going to try them out and see which one's the best. Because no I, I just, it can't be that hard to make a fucking audio player. Jesus. Yeah, I know. But then it would involve learning Java, and nobody wants to fucking do that. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, all right. Well, the huge news, the huge news of the, of the year, as far as I'm concerned, XFCE 4.14 has been released. And this is the huge move to GTK 3. We talked about it, I think, last time, didn't we? The, the beta of it or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, now it's out. Um, it's going to be in uh, Ubuntu 19.10. It's in the daily images already. Already. I've checked that out. I checked it out in Endeavor as well, the Arch-based uh, distro. And uh, it's pretty good. It's still a bit rough around the edges, to be honest. It's not quite as polished as I'd hoped. And uh, I looked at some high DPI support on an XPS 13, and uh, I don't know, the, the minimize and close buttons were just tiny, and some of the elements weren't 100%. So uh, what I'm really hoping is that by 2004, it's going to be perfect which is a little while away, so hopefully it will be. But there's some pretty cool new features in here. I mean, I'm sure you're not fucking interested at all. Well, that's, that's what I'm slightly worried about. These new features, have they not put you off immediately? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But are there additional features? Like in the display dialog, um, you know, in the settings, you've got an extra tab now where you can set up profiles. It's a bit like um, XRander or whatever, and you can save profiles of your different screens and stuff so that if you move in between offices or whatever where you've got maybe a different resolution or, or whatever i did test it and it didn't work very well once you <laughs> rebooted but uh you oh. know it's getting there early days it is early days for this um and there's like so quite a few other little features as well i mean there's some big features but it, it does seem to me like the gtk3 stuff is the the huge one um and oh, well, like for example, the screen shooter, as it's called, the, the screenshot tool. Now you can um, uh, just instead of having to hold Alt to do just the window, you can then go in and select whether you want the whole screen, the window, or whether you want to kind of drag a, a box. I, I presume this has all been in Plasma for many years. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> 
But, you know, it's getting new features, it's getting love, and that's the main thing, that it's not just been abandoned, as a lot of people would say. And, you know, you can say, oh, well, GTK 4's come in or whatever, but it is getting there. It isn't dead yet. It's just a flesh wound or whatever. <laughs> Get on the cart. Yeah. It's, so I, I'm very happy that this has come along. And um, because it's XSE, instead of just rushing to go to GTK 4 and do a load of new features, what they'll do is make all of these new features work really fucking well. It'll be really solid. And we'll have probably for another four years, because it's been like over four years since the last one, we will end up with a really solid desktop environment that is not changing all the time. And, you know, if you look versus uh, 4.12, what I'm staring at right now, it's not ultimately hugely different from that. It's just sort of a very slow progression. And that's what I love about XFCE. But it does have its own screensaver now. Yeah, I mean, they say, yes, we realize it's 2019's <laughs> winky face. Yeah, the first thing I do is disable that. So. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Who needs it? My screen's either on or off. I don't need a fucking screensaver. Wallpaper to black. Black. Yeah. yeah. For fuck's sake. Right. And they've brought in some uh, projects as well into XFC. Catfish, which um, is quite a funny name, really. <laughs> is that not a really dodgy scam? <laughs> you, you, hey, Joe, you've been catfished by X-Face. Look at you. Yes. But that's the, the, the file search, and that is now officially part of XFCE. I mean, it's been in XFC since I started using it, I think. So. Oh, you use it then, yeah? Oh, yeah, I use it all the time, yeah. Is it good? Yeah, it's pretty good. Does the job. Uh -huh. It doesn't do a brilliant job over the network, but that's probably like limited to Wi-Fi. Yeah. But for local files, it's pretty good. Yeah, you can search for just whatever you want, just like part of the file or just the extension or whatever, and it will find stuff. Does it search inside the metadata and stuff? Um, I don't know about that actually. Probably not. Maybe it does. I've never never tried. I should try that. We'll judge it too harshly yet. Anyway. Yeah. But all in all, I'm pretty happy with it, and I'm happy that I don't have to switch to it straight away, and that it'll be a while until I actually do switch to it. Um, but yeah, I'm going to do some more testing and, and follow the development of it, see where it goes. But yeah, it'll be, it'll be fine. It'll be amazing. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co/lnl, and you can get fifty dollars credit with thirty days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, in data centers all over the world with really fast network and really fast SSDs. And you can choose from one of the distros that they offer, like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, and CentOS, or FreeBSD. Or you can use your own custom image. And you can take those distros and build them up exactly how you want. Remember, you've got complete root access to these. Or you can go for one of their one-click apps, like LAMP and LEMP stacks and WordPress, Discourse, GitLab. And these droplets start from as little as $5 a month, and they scale all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and huge numbers of CPU cores, so you can deploy exactly how much you need for the application that you're using. If you need more storage, they've got block storage and object storage, which is really easy to attach to your droplet and just get going straight away. They have cloud firewalls, so you can block network traffic before it even gets to your VM, amazing backups, and a great Teams feature that allows multiple people to work on one droplet without having to share passwords. So go to do.co slash LNL, get your $50 credit, and get started. That's do.co slash LNL. Um, all right, it's a shame that Will isn't here for the news for this one, because ZFS on root is coming to the Ubuntu desktop in 1910. 
which is quite exciting, really. I mean, because ZFS on root gives you a lot of options for rollbacks and if things go wrong with updates and, and stuff, all the features of ZFS there could be pretty cool. I mean, are you tempted to use this? I don't know. On route, it seems a bit scary. I mean, at least it's coming out in 1910 and yeah, maybe six months of that. Is that good enough for 2004? Is it going to be stable, reliable? You'd hope so. I mean, it's not like it's coming. It's not, it's not a brand new file system here. So, you know, most of the people are going to know how they're going to lay it out, what they're going to do with it. And it's really only going to be stuff like getting it into the right point of the boot. I mean, you can do it already. There's a great walkthrough. That's up on the actual um, ZFS on Linux webpage. There's an Ubuntu 18.04 route on ZFS. Um, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't be doing that on my production machine, that's for sure. But I, I can absolutely see the advantages to rollbacks and stuff. I mean, that's great. And it, it's definitely a, a good file system. Uh, duh. But um, yeah, if they if they have enough time to like make the installer work really well and test out any of the, the issues they have, I think I think it could be really good. Yeah, well, it's doing well on my uh, little home server. So, uh, yeah, touch wood, all my data's safe there. Um, all right, well, let's end with, I suppose, sad news in a way. Richard Brown is stepping down or has stepped down as the OpenSUSE chairman. This has somewhat come out of the blue, really. He's just sort of part of the furniture over there, isn't he? You thought he'd just be there forever. Yeah, he's been there for five years, I think, twice as long as anybody before him. Yeah, yeah, so that's why it's a bit unexpected. And uh, he's going to stick around working for SUSE and everything. But I, I don't know, like, he's, is he cagey in his post about it? Like, he doesn't really give a a proper reason does he? he just sort of says the time was up and he says it's got nothing to do with them trying to be a bit more independent and everything i don't i feel like there's going to be more coming out of this oh. at some point we'll <laughs> but I, I don't know what was your read of it yeah i don't know I, I i imagine it's kind of if you've tried to run something well not run might be the wrong word but direct something in, in a particular way and now they're making it more open more community-based maybe you have to step aside at that point you don't want to be in the way with the not not older sort of views or whatever but you know you need to give someone else a chance to move on because otherwise it just becomes almost like your thing and then it can't kind of grow and expand so i, I don't know i think it's probably a good thing I'd say it's probably hard for him to do that, mind you, unless he was hating his his job day in, day out. But I don't think he was. Yeah. Well, so he's going to be replaced by Gerald Pfeiffer, who I've never met. I don't know. I've never spoken to. So I don't know anything about him, really. But um, he's uh, had quite a lot of um, experience with the project and everything. And um, to be honest, if Richard thinks he's going to do a good job, then I would agree with it. Because Richard has done a good job, there's no doubt. I mean, over here in like Ubuntu land, you know, in, in the UK and Ireland, it, it kind of, it doesn't feel like a hugely like important distro, but in some parts of Europe and America, it is a big distro. And he has done a good job of kind of shepherding it and, you know, uh, leading it. And they have had some good in innovations and stuff going on over there. So yeah, it'd be weird to see him go really, but, um, I'm, he, I'm sure he's going to stick around and be part of the community and everything still. But um, yeah, wish him good luck in his future endeavors. Yeah. Right, on to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. And you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support if you want to find out more details about how to support us. 
And remember that on Patreon, if you pay $5 or more per month, you can get the ad-free RSS feed. And if you've got any ideas for perks that would be good on Patreon, then let us know, really. I don't want to kind of do releasing shows early, and um, I don't want to do, like, exclusive content either. Joe, to come serenade you at your house. Yeah, yeah. I'll come and play you a song badly on my guitar or something. But if, if there's any, like, solid ideas that would... I don't know, make it more attractive, then I think I asked this before and no one said anything. So I don't know, it's, it's difficult because some people like to paywall stuff and I totally understand that, but it's just not really what we're about. So, so really shit business people. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, latenightlinux.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us about that or anything else. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. And they are a Linux-based computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 1804 and 1810. And they've got a huge range of laptops from affordable ones that are good for browsing and email and office tasks all the way up to huge powerhouses with even desktop components in them that you can do gaming, graphic design, 3D art, video editing, machine learning, all sorts. They've also got some desktops and servers and almost everything's configurable, so you can tweak it to be exactly what you want. And if you can't find something that's exactly right for your needs, then do get in contact with them, and they can sort you out a custom order. They're very approachable and great at communicating. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, then at checkout, there's a little drop-down. You can select Late Night Linux, and they'll know that we sent you to them. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. So you've recently bought a 3D printer, Graham, and I hear that it is pretty much open source, so you're going to have to tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, 3D printers aren't new, but they're getting to a stage now where, like, ordinary mortals... In fact, I built it with my daughter, um, it was a, um, who's 12, so it's a really good kind of weekend project. It's it, I, The model I bought was um, made by Prusa, it's like a it's a copy of a printer called Ni3, which is the Brewster and loads of those printers are based on the RepRap project, which I don't know if you remember. It's like I, from the mid two thousands, it was a project in from the UK where they tried to create a printer that could be built, could build its own parts to to help with accessibility. And it, the RepRap was responsible for that huge explosion in three D printers that happened after that. And so there's a there's a whole three or four generations down the line of printers built and based on the RepRap. And Prusa makes printers based on the RepRap. And the Mark III that we built is one such. It's like 26 parts printed with its with the very same printer that you used to put together with, with the circuit board. And there's a steel frame um, and there's like a powder-coated um, metal plate for putting your models on. But really interesting putting something together this complicated that requires... I mean, it's it's got like four motors. It's obviously got the three axes. It requires real precision in putting it together, but you can do it with just without any soldering, without any specific tools. And then the the, the final result, when we put it all together, basically turned it on, flashed the firmware. It was able to build models out of filament. It extrudes filament, like a PLA plastic or some some other kind of filament. There's a huge variety you can choose from. It comes out of a nozzle, very much like ink out of an old dot matrix, and builds upon layer upon layer of this. But the la- the layers are tenth of a, um, a millimeter or f- point, you know, ten fifty microns, um, building them up 
to create a 3D model. And the, the results even from the first print are really amazing. And I, since then, I've become slightly hooked. I've fixed all of the broken things. This weekend, I, I used OpenSCAD to fix a, our old table in the garden where, where the umbrella goes through because it was about to break all the wood and, and created a model printed out. I feel like I'm living in the future. <laughs> So this thing's completely open hardware and runs completely open source software then? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, there's, there's lots of different ways of doing it, but, I mean, the controller is 8-bit, so it's a bit like um, 737s, you know, still running um, 386s. It's the same kind of thing. It, it runs perfectly. You can... I did, and you can augment that with, like, a Raspberry Pi running something like... It's called OctoPrint, um, which adds kind of Wi-Fi capabilities to it and communicates over USB or a serial connection. And we did that as well. You just realise you've opened yourself up to receive horrific amounts of files from me to be printed by you, <laughs> but fair enough. Uh, so, like, does this thing come as a kit or how much of it do you actually have to make yourself? Like, obviously it comes as powdered metal, so I, I'm presuming you didn't have to smelt anything in the garage or anything. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't want to... Like make a specific advert for Prusa because you can buy these kits, you can build them yourself and lots of people do. They'll get a friend. It's like 26 printed parts and then you need the frame and then you need like the frame is the main thing um, and you need the metal rods that the, the motors drive. So there's a, there's a good few elements that you can't print, um, but the majority of the structure can be printed by anyone with a 3D printer, but we bought it all. Um, and yeah, the instructions, they're all there online, um, Creative Commons. Uh, you can kind of build your own and make it modifications as you want to. P people do swap out the extruder and there are different designs for that. So you can print in multiple colours, print in metal. People do metal extruding. So, you know, it becomes quite a complicated, geeky thing. And I know there's probably people who know a lot more about it than me, but, you know, I've been wanting to get into this for ages and it is, it is just as exciting as I hoped it would be. And how much was it? It was, I think it was £600. What? Yeah. It's an expensive one, the Prusa. Jesus. And how big a thing can you print with it then? I don't know off the top of my head. Probably about a volume a 23, 25 centimetres squared. I'm just looking at the base. It looks about that. It's quite a big volume. Oh, right. So not those tiny Yoda statues and stuff like that. You can actually print useful things with this. You could, but then it's the practicalities of printing that. So one of the, I, I created a bottle fit holder for my bike at the weekend, and that took 14 hours. <laughs> so like, a, I, I don't know, an object that has a volume of 23 centimetres cubed is going to probably take days. So you wouldn't practically do it, although it's remarkable how well the, the, the precision holds up over a 12-hour printing. I must say, when I first saw a 3D-printed object, I was a bit disappointed that it had those kind of weird, rough lines on the edges. I presume that hasn't improved massively. I mean, I've obviously seen those old ones. It's got a lot higher resolution. Um, also, I don't know what the real term for it would be in 3D printing. The, the dithering, the way that... Um, the gradation of the sides has improved massively. So it also depends on the material and people use heat guns to smooth over those that stepping thing. But I'm kind of, I'm not interested so much in modelling. Some people like to use it for their board games and stuff like that. I'm kind of in it for its functional stuff. I've got a list of things that I want to make that actually perform a purpose. So I'm not really too bothered about how they look. So the answer is that yeah, you can still see the stepping, but it's very small. If you're printing at a tenth of a millimetre or a fifteenth of a millimetre or a 0.15, then um, it's you don't really notice it from a couple of feet away. 
And can you print at a lower res more quickly then for things that aesthetically don't really matter? Yeah, you can. Um, there's all things, all kinds of things you can do to speed it up. Uh, if it's a simple object, you can speed it up. You can increase the flow of the extruder to for things that you don't need fine detail. And the so- lots of the software is free. The slice, so you get... <laughs> I mean, for the process starts with you get a model, and there are loads of like repositories for models online, like like there is for source code. But you can also create stuff in OpenSCAD and Blender if you really wanted to. But CAD software is better for this. You create the model, and then you slice it, which is basically turning it into the, each layer that the printer is going to use. And then for this model and a lot of other pro models, it's turned into a code. Um, into code which basically are instructions for where to move the print head or where to move, use the motors to so you you just send it a great big list of instructions effectively over the virtual serial port to move and extrude and have you had any fuck ups yet? not as many as I thought so there have been the main issue for me has been adhesion to the bottom surface so everything relies on how strong how firmly the first couple of layers stick to the to the metal sheet at the bottom if they don't stick the print will screw up later on it'll move <laughs> and it'll stick usually stick to the print head so you come in 12 hours later you know and all you've got is this huge ball of <laughs> so it takes a while to get that right in fact there's very very fine calibration for squishing that bottom layer at the right heat to be able to get it to stick to the bottom while still being able to build layers on top of that. Once you've dialed that in, it's been foolproof. And and I've bought cheap filament off eBay, and that's worked. I mean, people say that you can have all kinds of problems depending on the quality of the filament, and you need to have the exact kind of volume being fed through the extruder. That's important. Um, but I haven't had any problems. Really, the very first thing I printed worked really well. And there's been a few mess-ups, but it's to do with slicing. You need to kind of build this sixth sense over whether something needs support. You know, if you're creating a bridge, for example, and you're you're actually printing with a melted plastic, you know the bridge is just going to collapse. In those cases, you have to use the slicing software to build support underneath the bridge so that you can then just pull off those supports once the model is printed. And the software handles all of that. Open source software. You said you'd built a bottle holder for your bike. Is the plastic not really brittle? Is that not just going to break? There's a huge variety in, um, of the, the plastics that you can use. Um, people use commonly um, one called um, PLA, and it's biodegradable, which is pretty cool. But PLA is a little bit brittle. Um, it starts to go a little bit weak at 60 degrees, but it's it's it's, a, it's supposed to weather well and it works okay. And I've used it, and it's it seems strong enough to me. Mm. I've also got another one called PET-G, which I've used for printing some of the parts of the printer itself and for things that, like Raspberry Pi cases, when you know there's a good chance, like with the Raspberry Pi 4, for example, it's going to go over 60 degrees. <laughs> um, so, you know, you just choose the material for the job and PET-G will do that fine. And there are there is loads of others as well that I think you kind of choose according to the environment you're going to print for and are most of the plastics recycled or and or recyclable it's a really good question so uh, the majority of the plastics like um pet pet g and um, pla they're compostable so they'll decompose if you leave them outside in a load of bacteria within 30 days but you can't put them in at least in the uk you can't put them in the recycling bins 
um, the curbside recycling bins. You can put them, at, you know, at the refuse center. They'll go. There'll be a place for them. It's because they confuse. I, I looked this up. So thanks for asking it. It's because they confuse the recycling, the recyclers, with the commercial material that's made of very similar plastics. Um, so they are biodegradable, which is the most important thing. But you may have to compost them yourself or take them to the tip. I think I saw a video on YouTube about somebody getting old milk, plastic milk cartons and cutting them up into tiny pellets and then melting them into new filament. Have you tried any of that oh. sort of thing? No, that sounds quite fun, though. No, I haven't tried that. I love how you've spent 600 quid on a printer and then you bought the cheapest filament and are now going to melt plastic <laughs> bottles and then ruin it completely. <laughs> I know, I've got a completely wrong sense of proportion. <laughs> I also thought it would be good for my kids and, you know, to put some kind of practical side to 3D designing and, you know, it's, it is pretty cool designing something in 3D and then printing it out and then having it. But yeah, you can do it a lot cheaper. And I looked into doing that for so long, I just thought I'll buy something I'm, I'm pretty sure is going to work. It's a, it's, it, it's, they're built in the Czech Republic, um, so I've got to do it now before we leave the EU. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I can get you a back channel, special price. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw a 3D printer and I asked uh, the person who had it a bunch of questions and, and I asked him, um, you know, how much is the the filament? And he just said, like, negligible compared with the time. You know, you know, it's uh, it takes so long to do it that... Mm. But he kind of never answered me. I mean, is it expensive to to print something out? I mean, that, that thing that you did for your bike, like how much worth of filament? Are we talking pennies, pounds or what? So I can tell you, the software will tell you, that, so that was a really big model. The The filament comes in rolls that are typically a kilogram in weight. Um, and the the average kind of deep, reasonable quality PLA that I've been using is about £10. The um, PET-G is a bit more expensive. So it's a good, the good one that I've been using was £20. And they're both for kil, um, kilogram reels. And the bike holder was about 100 grams it used about 100 grams of the of the filament so 10 percent of one whether you print it in pla or pet g so a pound um, and that also depends on how much infill you use which is the kind of the the, the algorithmic filling of the center part of the solid um, depending on what you're going to use, use. So I've created a big cube that's only 20 percent filled right because they have kind of a crisscross pattern inside don't you to create space yeah i don't understand what it is it's some it looks cool it's some kind of weird web you know you you'd recognize it when you look into some other plastic models and and they're very much the biggest things i've done mostly like the thing that fixed the table that that, that probably costs less than 20 pence or 15 pence other than my even in open scad which is a really cool scripting cad application um it only took 10 20 minutes just to measuring the hole and creating creating um a couple of um models there's a better way of describing that but i'm getting too geeky <laughs> what, what is a scripting card when it's at home so you know like computer-aided software design you can you like kind of drop cylinders and cubes and toruses and things like that and then you kind of move them around and you you adjust their properties open scad which i'd never i'd been aware of but not used before does all that with a very very simple scripting language so there's a function called cuboid and then it will take the X, Y, Z. And you, you just type that in in a small editor on the left and then it appears in the right. So the great thing is that when you create, like for that table, for example, I created a, a big cylinder, flattened it down and then created a, a smaller cylinder 
and I put the smaller cylinder in something that would subtract from the union of the other cylinder. Just so very, it, oh it sounds God. more complicated than it really is. <laughs> it sounds like fucking turtle paint or whatever that thing was called. No, it's not. It's just, <laughs> it was, it's about five lines. But when I, when I printed it out and it was the wrong size, all I had to do was just delete and, sub, and reduce the number by a single millimetre or add it and it fitted. I didn't have to do any dragging and dropping or manipulating in the GUI. Um, it's a lot easier than I made it describe, you know, put a sphere in. Um, the, the add subtract was just so that I could create a hole through the middle of the um, of the disk. It wasn't a lot of parentheses in the script, was it? No, well, it was a little bit, but that's the power of it. It wasn't lisp, was it? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it could be. Because uh, a thing I found out that was um, my dad used to do AutoCAD drawings, and it turned out there was a little console down the bottom, ah. which actually was all lisp, which... It's like combining two of my worst nightmares into one 3D drawing and Lisp. Well, I didn't have to learn any of the peculiarities of whatever the language was. So because it wasn't all Lisp I'm... then? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it, it was just common sense if you've done anything, any simple scripting or programming. So is it fair to say that you're going to use this for mainly printing shims, for sorting out wobbly tables and holding doors open and... Putting, propping your phone up on the desk rather than any sort of serious um, manufacturing? Um, I think, well, it, you could use it for prototyping. Um, I mean, there's some, I printed out a load of gears that work. You couldn't actually create in real life because the gears um, have the, uh, I can't remember what they're, they're the specific name for the, the way these gears function. They're printed in place so that they turn in place. You couldn't actually print them separately and then put them together. Um, and it, I've printed out a Raspberry Pi Zero case for it, and I want to print some Eurorack front panels for it, um, for synthesizer panels and things like that. So it, you can't produce professional, you know, you know, kind of output yourself. I mean, the printer's made out of stuff it prints, so it, it's got a, it's a functional design, but it's not like the perfect crystalline, clear, ultimate, you know, infinite resolution of professionally made stuff, but. I'd use it before sending stuff off for manufacturing, for example, if I was to create a panel for something. It'd be perfect for that. So presumably, because it's all open source and everything, people have hacked it and done all sorts of crazy new shit with it. That must be a, a whole subculture. Yeah. And, the you know, the Octoprint, which is the, um, the, the software running on the Raspberry Pi controlling the printer, it uses a huge plug-in architecture that people have written plugins to do everything from, you know, synchronizing it with your house lights to slicing and dicing all with a drag and one single drag-and-drop operation from your phone. Um, yeah, and I, I've barely... I've only taken like a first step into this kind of world, but it's it's already huge and well established, I think, because the RepRap has been around for over 10 years. The main question, though, is, um, is this going to be like everyone else who gets a 3D printer, who uses it fuck loads at the beginning, and then just dwindles to the point where it gets stuck on a shelf and never used again? I don't know. You have to ask me a year. I hope not. Um, I've, I've wanted one for a long, long time. I mean, we used to write about it a long time ago, and they always seemed too expensive then. Um, I just wanted something that worked, and I've, I've still got a huge list of things that I want to try and print off. So maybe when I've exhausted that list and it comes down to a couple of things every month or two, maybe, but I hope not. Have you also got a sandwich toaster? <laughs> <laughs> I really want one of those. They're really delicious. But then again, for a few days, <laughs> then you don't use it. 
You'll have to use the uh, KD Atelier package and let us know how that goes with it, if it's any use. No, I haven't tried it. No, I'll give it a go. Trust you to find something KDE-related, Phelim, honestly. Well, fucking too right. Uh, keeping it real, man. <laughs> no, but one thing, for example, is, do you remember the synthesizer I was telling you about that is missing its buttons? I can't buy those buttons anywhere. Um, and I'll be able to model them and replace ancient buttons in, uh, in an old synth. <laughs> sure, I could have used a couple of plastic lids I found <laughs> on something, but no, I've spent 600 quid on a printer. <laughs> now we've got to the actual reason yeah. why you bought it. Let's face yeah. it. You guys are learning far more about me than I'm willing to <laughs> let you know. Well, now that I know you've got one, I'm going to uh, have to try and find shit that I this I can't remember what it was. There was something that I wanted to print. A new dashboard for my car. <laughs> Actually, there is a bit uh, on the dashboard of my car that's fucked and could do with a replacement. But uh, that car's old and shit. And I don't care. Presumably, you've just got it running twenty four seven at the moment, then, because it takes so long to print anything. Well, it's in the it's in the room that I work, so. I- I haven't. I've been running it at the weekend, um, doing smaller jobs in the evening because it's pretty quiet, and I think it's a lot quieter than previous generations. But you can't really, um, you can't really sit and concentrate or have meetings in the same room with it. And I'm slightly concerned about running it unobserved. I, so one of the things with the Raspberry Pi is I put a web, I attached a webcam to it, um, so that I could see because it does mess up, and you've got to be aware that it messes up. And I'm also slightly worried about the temperatures that it deals with. I don't. The, the nozzle, for example, is typically running at like 250 degrees centigrade. Oh Jesus! Depending on the what you're printing, the base can be running at 100. And it's. I don't know whether it's a fire hazard or not, but I wouldn't really like to leave it. Um, you know, in the garage somewhere, happily printing, or overnight downstairs. At least not without a smoke alarm position right above it. <laughs> 600 degrees is the combustion point for paper, I think. I think you need like an outhouse to do it in where if there's a little fire, it's not the end of the world, maybe. <laughs> a little fire, okay. <laughs> yeah. You just put it in the fireplace then. Yeah, that's a genius idea. Just run an extension lead to the, uh, the fireplace. Presumably it doesn't use, or maybe it does use a lot of juice then, if it's getting to that kind of temperature. Hmm. Now, that's something I should... I've got a couple of those plugs that measure. I've got one on my main PC. I should put it on the printer to see what it does. I'm also interested... I've no experience of this, but there's a new generation of printers that use um, print in resin. Quite they, they So there were commercial printers. So there's, a, there's basically a reservoir of resin, and commercial printers use a laser to focus light within this resin that solidifies within the resin, resin to build a model. There's a new generation of printers that use... LCD screens to basically do do create the solid layer in the resin and so you don't have this moving extruder you basically just have the upside down model moving slowly up through the resin as the object takes shape within the resin and it kind of pops out of the end so that's proper Star Trek no it's the future. <laughs> uh, public safety announcement. The combustion temperature of paper is 233 degrees. You will burn your house down. <laughs> you could uh, keep a coffee pot on the uh, on the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with hopefully a full house. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. See you later.